This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I'm Deb Hutton, your host uh, for News Talk Today over the next couple of hours. Thank you for spending your time with me. So while this is a national show, I know a lot of folks have been paying attention to what's happening in the city of Toronto, specifically with some changes to how council functions. We have had the provincial government introduce two pieces of legislation over the last few months that make changes to how a mayor and how council can make decisions on our behalf here in the city as taxpayers, as voters, and as people who rely on services in this city. Last week, we saw a couple of stunts by some councillors when council opened for its first session after the election earlier this year. And the mayor obviously has had some challenges in putting forward his perspective on why some of the issues included in the legislation introduced by the province, the two pieces of legislation, are something that needs to be addressed here in the city. So I thought it was a good time to take a look, get some expert opinion on what really is in the two pieces of legislation the Ontario government introduced for the City of Toronto and what's not in those pieces of legislation. What can a mayor do? What can't they do if both of these pieces of legislation actually pass? And I'd also like to take a little bit of a survey in other parts of North America, because keep in mind, Toronto is the fourth largest city in North America. And certainly every city is a little bit different in how it functions. But I'd like to get an overview of what other cities do to allow their respective mayors to make decisions, to put forward their agendas that they've run on and been elected on. So to help us do that, to help us break down the legislation that's that is working its way through the system here in Ontario, is Zach Taylor, an associate professor of political science and local government at Western University, my alma mater, I might point out. Zach, welcome to News Talk today. Pleased to be here. So two pieces of legislation, Bill 3, Strong Mayors Building Homes Act, and Bill 39 that goes by the title of Municipal Governance Act 2022. Don't know if you want to take them one at a time or you want to take them together, but help our listeners understand really as it relates to the mayor's authority in the city of Toronto, what is contained in that legislation? Well, first, we should say that it's not just the city of Toronto. It's also the city of Ottawa that's affected by this legislation right now. And you may have listeners there. Um, I think we need to be clear about the way things work in most municipalities uh, across Canada. And in fact, most municipalities across the United States as well. They have something called a council manager system. Uh, We might also call that a weak mayor system. Um, in, in, In a system like that, the mayor sits on the council, votes as one mayor on council, and it's really up to the mayor to build a consensus uh, uh, among the councillors in order to uh, to move the, uh, his or her agenda forward. Um, what Bill 3, this first act uh, that was passed back in September, did is uh, it gives the mayor uh, a veto uh, under some, some circumstances. So if council passes a bylaw over the mayor's objection, which is already a very rare uh, occurrence, uh, the mayor can veto it, and uh, uh, the council can override that veto with a two-thirds vote. So what this does is it makes uh, Toronto and Ottawa for now, and maybe future Ontario cities, if this gets rolled out across the province, 
um, it makes them more like the mayors of Chicago or, or New York City who, who have a veto. Uh, over over council bylaws, but again, this Zach, is incredibly I, I just, rare. Sorry, Zach. Can I just stop yeah, you there? Yeah. In in uh, Chicago and New York, does council mm-hmm. have the ability to veto the veto, so to speak? Yeah, yeah. A, t- a two thirds uh, majority can can overturn um, uh, the mayor's veto. So the so difference it, is, it can is, yeah, be neutered. I, essentially, is that it? It, it can be. Okay. Uh, just th- this is a pretty rare. Rare occurrence. I mean, if you look at the last uh, uh, two terms of office for John Tory in Toronto, um, you know, 90 percent, 98 percent of the time, uh, the council voted with the mayor, uh, you know, almost every single time. <laughs> so it's it's kind of hard to even find uh, an example of of uh, the mayor uh, coming up against a, a council that uh, refuses to to pass something that the mayor is in favor of. Yeah. So, but um, this is obviously generic. isn't isn't about the sitting mayor, but about mayors going <clears> forward. <throat> so, so the new legislation yep. introduced and passed in September puts us sort of on par with cities like New York and Chicago. Yeah. Okay. There are a handful handful of uh, big cities in the United States that have what's called a a mayor council system or, or a strong mayor system. Uh, where the mayor, uh, in fact, doesn't sit as a part of council. They're like a president, uh, separate from Congress, if you want to use the American analogy. Uh, and, and they can, uh, they, they can uh, veto uh, council bylaws. Now, uh, so what that does is it, it creates a kind of check and balance, right? Uh, right? The mayor represents the city-wide interests. The ward members uh, represent their ward interests. Um, and then for really, really important issues, uh, you need a higher level of consensus and, and uh, that kind of check and balance can play out through this veto. Uh, what makes uh, Toronto and Ottawa different from these big uh, American cities is that this veto can only be used in matters that the province has deemed to be a priority or in matters to do with the budget. Um, in these big American cities, it can be used uh, in any circumstance. Okay. And then the second piece of legislation, Bill 39. Yeah, this is where we get into uncharted waters, because uh, what the province is introducing here is something that does not exist in uh, any democracy around the world, um, which is for uh, uh, if a mayor uh, favors uh, a particular proposal uh, before council, um, the mayor can uh, work with only one third of council to pass that into effect. So. Uh, what that means is that only a, a minority vote, a one-third vote of council, can uh, approve a bylaw. Uh, this goes against hundreds of years of uh, of, of of history, of, of kind of foundational democratic norms. I think uh, in in any uh, legislative uh, assembly around the world, it's generally uh, understood that that you need a majority vote in order for something to take effect. And again, this is something that that can only be uh, invoked if it fits with something the province deems to be uh, a priority. So, are there any cities in let, let's say North America, but you you may have um, uh, examples other than that, but but where a mayor can actually do what he or she was elected to do, uh, if elected on a particular platform, without council's approval? Or is council always the check in this? Uh, well, in our democratic systems, uh, we we assume that uh, for a law to be passed, the 
legislative assembly needs to uh, approve it. <laughs> and right. it's really up to uh, a president or, um, you know, at the local level, a mayor to to uh, execute that. So what this does is it it creates a kind of uh, soft uh, dictatorial power, which I, I think really has no no precedent anywhere in North America uh, at the local level. So every mayor of a large city has some check on he or she based on their system. There's nothing. So you get elected to uh, pick any topic on a platform through a city. You you may not, in fact, be able to get that particular item through in pretty much every city unless you have some council. Sure, that's true for for any level of government uh, in 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 any country, right? It's uh, the the burden of proof is is on uh, the chief executive, uh, whether it's a mayor or a president or a prime minister, to to build an appropriate consensus for it to pass in the legislature, uh, and and uh, uh, for something to pass, uh, you need uh, majority rule, and that's fifty percent plus one of the votes. What this does is it brings it down to thirty three. Uh, percent. Um, what that means is that uh, Mayor Tory will be able to uh, pass uh, a bylaw with only members of his handpicked executive committee agreeing with him. Or uh, if we look at a smaller council, a place like, uh, you know, Brampton, um, Patrick Brown, on a where he he has a council of five members, he will only need to bring one councillor on side in order for these bylaws to take effect. Zach Taylor, I wish we had more time. Interesting stuff. Thank you so much for joining News Talk today. Stay tuned for after the break. For something to pass, uh, you need uh, majority rule, and that's 50% plus one of the votes. What this does is it brings it down to 33 uh, percent. Um, what that means is that uh, Mayor Tory will be able to uh, pass uh, a bylaw with only members of his handpicked executive committee agreeing with him. It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. You uh, just heard a clip from our last segment of Zach Taylor, who's an assistant uh, professor of political science and local government at Western University, talking about the two pieces of legislation the Ontario government has introduced earlier this fall, one of which is passed, the second one is making its way through the legislative process. And essentially, those two pieces of legislation give additional authorities to the sitting mayor, regardless of who that is, of Toronto and Ottawa. The sense is some of those powers would extend over a period of time to other major cities here in Ontario. And I, I want to take your calls on this, one 855 because I think this is a pretty important issue. It's, it's one that I, I know other provincial governments are looking at, certainly when you get into large cities like Montreal and Vancouver, obviously here, as I said, Toronto and Ottawa. It is time to take a look at how we set up governance of those municipalities. As you know, they don't actually exist in our constitution. The province, we used to always say in politics, has the ability to to do what they want with municipalities. They are creatures of the provincial government. And what has happened here in Ontario is that the government of the day has decided that the current mayor, mayors going forward, need to have some additional uh, authorities to be able to get through, in particular, provincial priorities, things like housing, things like transit, 
Let's take your calls, 1-855-633-1010. I'll tell you my view on this. I actually like the two pieces of legislation. I like the expanded authorities that are being given to the mayor of the day here in Toronto and Ottawa. And here's my reasoning. Here in Toronto, we have a housing crisis. And it is my view that the reason we got into this, and there's a, a number of them, but in Toronto, the reason it is in particular so dire is that the nimbyism of councillors over the last couple of decades has meant that we have not been able to build the kind of density and the kind of creative housing that this city needs as the fourth largest city behind Mexico City, New York and L.A., the fourth largest city in North America. And so you need to have an ability for a mayor who runs on a platform, is duly elected by the entire city, not a small ward, to be able to push through their agenda. 1-855-633-1010. I'll make the same point on transit. We in the city of Toronto have not built the kind of transit, the extent of transit that this city needs, given its population, its population growth in the next number of decades, the fact that it is a magnet for immigration in this country. We have not been able to do that because of nimbyism and because we have a mayor who gets elected mayor after mayor after mayor on a platform by the whole city and yet truly does not have the ability to implement that agenda. Let's go to the calls. Adam in North York, what's your thought on this? Well, he, he should have just, he didn't need to do any of this. All he needed to do is remove one piece of legislation, which is res- restricting local councils to not be able to have political parties. And by who you, sorry, by who you mean the premier? Yeah. Okay. Uh, if you wanted Chicago, you could have Chicago. Just all you had to say is the political parties are allowed. In, at the municipal level, and then you would have exactly this. And, and you wouldn't have nimbyism because you you live and die all together. That's why it works in Vancouver and why it works in Montreal. But for some reason, Ontario wants a Protestant model, so they've got the Protestant model, which is everything is local. I'm a Protestant. I'm not sure what, <laughs> what that means, but because essentially your... model means that you have centralized government, and the Protestant model means you have decentralized government. So you're okay with the concept you don't like the implementation? Is that a fair point, Adam? No, I don't like the idea of having a third of the council being able to have the powers. All right. Want- Thanks for the call. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Adam. Jim in Richmond Hill, what's your thought on these new two pieces of legislation here in the city of Toronto and in Ottawa? Well, I, I think it's fine. I have no problem with it. And I think your guess was a little bit... Uh, maybe naive to think that democracies have free votes and everyone can vote with their own opinion and everything else, because that's not true. Uh, in federal politics, it's not true. And um, so, and, you know, because we have party politics. So uh, I think that uh, everybody in the GTA or everybody in Toronto votes for a mayor who has a vision and that's the way it should be. All right. Thanks for that, Jim. Yeah, I will say um, the uh, the professor uh, talked about the fact uh, as as a point uh, that 
Mayor Tory in particular. And again, this isn't about the sitting mayor. This is about how our council and our mayors function going forward, that he's he's never lost a vote on council. Well, the problem is you don't bring things forward to council if you're going to lose the vote. And so you don't know how much doesn't get moved forward because it never makes it to the floor of city council. Let's go to uh, Kristen in Toronto. Kristen, you're a former councillor. Hi. Yep. Um, yeah, no, this is something that's been needed for a long time. And speaking from experience, uh, you have councillors who will only listen to uh, uh, the NIMBYs in their area, which are most often the minority, and make those decisions because they are so fearful about not being reelected. And those are the threats that come to them about, hey, if you don't support us, we won't reelect you. So we need uh, some good, solid thought on how do we fix that, and this is one way to fix that, to get more housing built, and and other things as well, not just housing, things that uh, uh, the NIMBYs do not want but are beneficial to our city. Kristen, thanks for that. I think we agree on this issue. Let's go to Frank in Brampton. Now, Frank, it's not part of your community yet, but it might be. What's your thought on these pieces of legislation? Hey, how are you? Listen, Deb, one of the bigger issues that people fail to understand is not just council. I'm 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 a, I'm a I'm a designer by trade. I design houses and I build houses. And what I find really frustrating with the city of Toronto is the rules that are in place that are so stringent into doing any type of redevelopment, new housing additions or whatever, are so bad it could take months and years just to get approval. So not only do you get nimbyism from councillors and nimbyism from residents, but the building department, the planning department, the zoning department. All are contributing to this, 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 this lack of any type of effort to do any kind of housing in the city of Toronto, unless it benefits certain individuals. I'm not going to say who, but you know what I mean. And that's the unfortunate thing. So, Frank, you raise a good point, and and one of the other things we didn't talk about with the prof and and haven't yet in this segment is that on top of the the council votes. These two pieces of legislation, the first one, Bill 3 in particular, does give the mayor of the day the ability to establish or dissolve committees, to appoint chairs and vice chairs, to assign functions, to to actually hire and fire people who yeah. aren't doing their job. And so I yeah, think – yeah, go can ahead. Can I interject really quickly? Yeah. One of the biggest problems that the city of Toronto has is committee of adjustment. The fees involved just in the city of Toronto for committee of adjustment are ridiculous. So that's why people will sit there and not want to build anything unless the amount of money that they have, liquid cash available, is huge. So when you're looking at the costs, the, the committees, and everything else that's involved, and, 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 and the province of Ontario wants everyone to build, oh, yeah, we need to build more housing. You cut the rules, you can have all kinds of housing built. If you reduce the stress in the, in the amount of, of needless requirements, it, it, things will get built so much faster. But the, one of the bigger problems that the province doesn't want to talk about is you want to build 1.5 million homes. You don't have the skilled labor. You can bring in a half million people. You will still not have the skilled labor to build a million and a half homes. It's impossible. All right, Frank, thanks for that. I think that's a, another topic for, for another day, but appreciate your thoughts. I, I will say, um, as I was trying to say to, to Frank, I do believe that part of the changes to what a mayor of the day is able to do is that you can actually attack the the bu- bureaucracy and some of the regulatory stuff that has been held up um, 
uh, with these new authorities for the mayor. Coming up after the break, we're going to take a little bit of time to break down what we saw now that the public component, the inquiry component of the Emergencies Act inquiry is actually completed. Great panel coming up. We've got Sharon Carr, Michael Kempa, and Peter McKay. Stay tuned. It's Deb Hutton, News Talk Today. It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host uh, for the show today, tomorrow, and I think Wednesday I'm actually here as well. So thanks for joining me for part of your afternoon. We all know, I think, that Friday wrapped up the testimony component, the public component of the inquiry into the government's use, the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act for the first time in the Act's history. And so I thought, given that we have to wait two, maybe three months to see what the judge actually determines, today might be a good day to kind of break things down and and put together a panel to talk about what we heard overall now that we have the benefit of everything behind us, what that means for the government and what we're likely to see in the justices' report whenever that comes out, likely sometime in February. So joining us this afternoon, Peter McKay, former Minister of Justice and Attorney General and former Minister of National Defense, Michael Kempa, a criminologist at the University of Ottawa focused on the politics of security, public safety and policing, and Sharon Carr, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Federal Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Welcome to the news talk today program my friends hello thank you so thank you. i'd like to we've we've got two uh segments here with a break in the middle and i thought what we might do is turn our attention first in this first little few minutes to the sort of technical issues the legal threshold issues what did we see overall that made us believe that the judge is likely to rule one way or another and then after the break we'll get into the fun stuff which is the political stuff did the government make its case to the general public, are we satisfied with what we heard from the prime minister, his ministers, and the uh, myriad of, of folks who testified over the last number of weeks? Michael Kemp, I want to start with you because what caught my attention over the weekend was a, a, an op-ed that you wrote entitled How Trudeau, in brackets, barely made his case for using the Emergencies Act. So I'm going to have you kick off our discussion and talk about what you believe the government achieved or not over the last few weeks from a legal threshold technical perspective on this review. Well, what they achieved at first was not very positive. They were very successful in confusing everybody and I think perhaps revealing their own confusion as to what the actual thresholds and rules were for mobilizing the Emergencies Act to begin with. So we all now know that there's the famous Section 2 standards from the CSIS Act that apparently apply to both CSIS and the the federal government before they get into sort of the emergency mode in their respective profiles. So David Vigneault, the head of CSIS, said that for the purposes of CSIS, these thresholds had not been met, which meant that they cannot start getting into their uh, role of domestic intelligence gathering with respect to the people involved in the convoy movement. It wouldn't be appropriate. But then he did say, despite the fact that these standards don't quite get there for us, in my opinion, and I advise the Prime Minister, we did get there for the federal government for their purposes of declaring the emergency to maintain public order or bring it back. 
So the question, of course, for the next 10 days was, how can the same words lead to different outcomes for two different institutions? And the government did itself no favors by presenting no clear message on how to square that circle. On the one hand, we heard from Minister Mendicino, for example, that, and he echoed David Vigneault a little bit, that CSIS and the government have very different functions. And therefore, you have to read the terms of the Section 2 standards in terms of what they do. So maybe there's some different thresholds. Then even more unhelpfully, members of government and public um, servants started to talk about updating the standards. That is certainly a very important question for another day. But obviously, you can't justify what you've already done by changing the definition of the rules, moving the moving the goalposts. So finally, at the very end, on the very last day, a little bit surprising because Mr. Trudeau is not known for focus on detail, he finally articulated very clearly, no, the words are the same, the thresholds are the same. What's different is the inputs that CSIS has and the government has. The government gets far more information from many more institutions than does CSIS, and therefore it is entirely possible to have that different outcome because we analyze the situation differently. So this is not too radical a view of reading the rules. It's actually a literal reading of the first set of rules. The question will therefore be, did the government reach that threshold? Does their information show that there actually was an emergency and this is a reasonable estimation? And I think we just barely got there. Peter McKay, you're also a lawyer uh, and have uh, been around politics for a long time on the legal threshold issue. What do you think of Michael's comments on this? Well, there's there are some subtleties there, as there always are. Glad that you've broken this down into a political threshold and performance art, perhaps, and, and strict legal definitions, because that is the key to a finding. And this is not going to be a, a finding of guilt, or this is not a, a criminal threshold that Justice Rouleau is working with here. There's many inputs, as uh, as has just been described. But the definition, I come back to the to definition, I, I certainly agree that uh, one of the many outcomes of this uh, commission will, will likely be changed to the CSIS Act, an amendment perhaps, to correct what, what is not a loophole, but what is um, what judges often do, and that's reading in certain interpretations. So urgent, critical, temporary situation, health and safety of Canadians, these are all important considerations. But you go back to the, the testimony of the no, Director of CSIS, who said, no, they, they simply did not meet the threshold. Interestingly, the clerk of the Privy Council, who also weighed in, as she should, Janice Charette, uh, she, first, but certainly Minister Freeland spoke of this as well, read in discussions around economic impact, which is interesting. Not not irrelevant, not uh, beyond uh, uh, a, a serious consideration, but not there in the legislation. And so from a, a strictly legal, albeit nuanced, interpretation of the Act, I don't think they got there. It was close. And uh, one could certainly make the argument, as, as the Prime Minister and others have done. One of the fascinating parts of all of this, Deb, is uh, what was the Department of Justice's role in all of this? Having headed that department for a time, very often uh, there is uh, a request 
from the Privy Council, from ministers, to give a legal interpretation. And we know that that happened here, and yet we don't know what that strict legal advice was. And this has been a question that was raised in the context of the SNC-Lavalin affair and the departure, if I can put it that way, of Jody Wilson-Raybould, and this this role that goes between being the, the, the lawyer for the government and being essentially of our, our justice system, the, the so-called soap principle. And so this, again, comes, comes to the forefront uh, in terms of how, how the legal definition played out in all of this. And I think there's, there's still a lot of intrigue as to what that final legal advice was. Sharon Carr, your thoughts on this? I know you're not a lawyer, uh, but in terms of meeting the threshold, what's your take on on what the government did or didn't achieve? So definitely, I think, uh, and I think my two colleagues here are are making good points around exactly what happened and have legal backgrounds. So from my perspective, I would say my experience that I would say many probably have in government is that these acts and that are put in place often are put in place hoping they never actually have to use them. And when it comes time to using them, there is always this type of question around interpretation. And we've seen it with almost every type of case that's been brought forward, similar to what Mr. McKay just said about S&C. So from a threshold perspective, if I, having listened to the testimonies, I did, I did sense a bit of the passing the buck around, whether it was CSIS saying we recommended it or we suggested it, but we it didn't meet the threshold. So I think the legal the legal language is going to be what they really focus in on. Now, I, I do think that, like my colleagues here have said, is they're going to they're going to have to have a review or an interpretation of how they approach the Emergencies Act in the future. Because if we if we look at the economic aspect, the economic aspect I think played the biggest part in what was happening, and it wasn't just solely in Ottawa. We're talking about Coots and at the Windsor Detroit border. So I pers- like my personal view is that there's many failures that happened that led to using the Emergencies Act, and a lot of it was a lack of police doing their job, a lack of every level of government doing their job, um, and it was just kind of a pass the buck around and then let's invoke the act and get rid of the hooligans that are kind of taking over the town but now folks are i think pretty upset because some of their rights that are in the charter were taken away with their bank accounts being frozen so Sharon, I'm, I'm gonna I'm, I'm, personally- gonna I'm gonna have to stop you there we're up against uh, the break but stay tuned we'll all be back after this break but it was clear that it wasn't that they just wanted to be heard They wanted to be obeyed. They wanted us to change public policy, public health policy designed uh, to help Canadians. And we're going to occupy uh, locations across this country and interfere with the lives of Canadians until such a decision was taken. Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton. Of course, that was the Prime Minister during his testimony on Friday, a a clip that I think uh, rings true for a lot of people when they think about what was happening earlier this year. Joining us to talk about the inquiry and, and what we learned through that process so far is Peter McKay, the former Minister of Justice and Attorney General and former Minister of National Defense. Michael Kempa, a criminologist at the University of Ottawa, focused on the politics of security, public safety, and policing, and Sharon Carr, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Bill Morneau. I said uh, a little bit ago that we would break down sort of the legal threshold, the technical part of the inquiry, and whether or not the government made its case. 
I, I now want to turn to the politics of things. So we we have seen weeks of testimony. We've heard from a variety of sources, including several cabinet ministers and most recently the prime minister. Sharon, I'm going to start with you. How do you think the government fared overall from the testimony phase of this inquiry? I actually think that the testimonies helped the government with their with their case in terms of why they did invoke the act. Now, we, we heard about issues around cross-border trade. We heard the pressure that the U.S. was putting on us. This was a this was a large economic issue for just not just the city of Ottawa and what was happening locally, but for, I would say, a lot of our cross-border trade issues. And I think uh, Prime Minister Freeland referenced this last week when she testified and said the example was a single vehicle crosses the border almost six times before it actually gets to where it needs to go. So I think seeing the pressure that was coming from the U.S. and everyone else definitely um, made it clear that this was a problem. So I actually think that the convoy uh, representatives and their lawyers did not do themselves any justice, especially with some of the shenanigans that went down with accusing lobbyists of holding Nazi flags and then just the ridiculous around that. So I think the prime minister and folks did as well as they could in this case. Peter McKay, uh, you have a legal background, a ministerial background, and and a raw politics background. What's your take on what the government did or didn't achieve over the last number of weeks? Well, with that description, Deb, it makes it sound like I can't keep a job. You may have a point. Um, I I think there's no question there was a lot of raw politics and optics that have unfolded from the very beginning. And I suspect that in part the the uh, events in the U.S. Capitol also were, were somewhat lurking in the background. And as Michelle said, there was a lot of different aspects of this and a lot of spaghetti thrown at the wall. At the end of the day, uh, politics are, are very important here. I think uh, the prime minister, his cabinet, may come away somewhat unscathed by all of this, although there are a lot of people, obviously, in the country who did feel a certain affinity to these truckers and, and the frustration that was felt. The Prime Minister's comments were interesting because he would have you see that, uh, that this was a, a national crisis. There was no reference, of course, to the blockade that happened just a few short years ago that the structure. Um, we have Peter, I think we've got a problem with your phone. I'll get uh, Mark Sorry. Tang to see if we can fix it, and I'll move on to uh, Michael Kempa. We'll come, we'll come back to you, Peter. So, Michael sure. Kempa, if, if in fact the, uh, the judge were to rule that the government uh, did not meet the threshold, mm. do you think politically that that will be an issue for them? Well, I think it's, it is entirely possible that the judge will conclude that they may not have met that threshold. I don't see it as a slam dunk either way. It's either just across the line, as I sort of softly argued. I think the point that I'm more making is that the interpretations have been all over the place. And if the threshold is not met, I think that the nature of the evidence given um, at least gives people the idea that if the government made a legal mistake, it was likely an honest one rather than sort of, say, an evil plot to invoke the Emergencies Act. Uh, there's a lot of confusion as to how that actually works. I wouldn't want to embarrass Mr. McKay, but I'd say I probably have a lot more in common with him than many people might assume on these questions. I think even more important than the final judgment on whether the EA was right or wrong 
We've got to improve our laws and the enforcement of our laws around the difference between legitimate protest and illegal occupation and damage to infrastructure and so forth. These recommendations coming from Justice Rouleau are going to be what are particularly important, how we avoid ending up in this position again in the future, because there will be more mass protests. Peter, have we got you back? Yes, I'm here. Okay, Uh, so let you finish your thoughts and and maybe respond to what Michael has said. Yeah, just picking up on this, I I do think, uh, as he has rightly said, it it will be a close call at the end of the day. And the legal interpretation may, in fact, win out over the the more sort of broader peace order and good government discussion that much of this this inquiry, this commission has focused on with a lot of rhetoric around attacks on democracy. I think the references to weapons throughout was was grossly over-exaggerated. And that came out a little bit in some of the gallows humor that you heard from some of the ministers in texts. But the political interpretation and the fallout from that, I think, will be de minimis. I don't think you're going to see uh, this, for example, being an election issue other than with perhaps a a rather narrow band of Canadians who, who took deep offense to the way in which this entire convoy was handled. And we need to go back and, and remember why the protest happened. And it was a slow-moving and uh, gradual process that culminated in their arrival in Ottawa, which begs the question, why weren't the Ottawa police better prepared? But that may be for another day and, and another discussion. Sharon Carr, do you see uh, legislative changes as a result of, uh, of what the judge ultimately decides in his report? Depends. I think that they might make some changes around the interpretation and how they can enforce and invoke the act. But like, I, I, I kind of agree with Peter. I don't think anyone is going to come out really scathed on this. I think the people that are going to be upset are going to be upset. But um, we're hearing now that there's a Freedom Convoy 2.0 potentially happening next year. So I think that if that's actually a serious um, event that is going to occur, they might actually have to. So I think we're going to have to wait and see what the report says. Michael Campo, what do you see as, as potential changes? So regardless of where the judge comes down on whether the government met the threshold, do you see some changes either to the Emergencies Act itself or to other companion pieces of legislation? Yes, uh, changes. You, you have to look at the uh, Emergencies Act, the CSIS Act and the RCMP Act as basically a related troika of legislation. They'll probably bring those into better alignment. And I, I do expect that there's going to be some clarity brought to some uh, regulations or laws around protest just to render it clear, as they have similar legislation in the UK, which types of protest are perfectly legal and what how do the police support that type of protest versus clarity on where protest bleeds into illegal occupation, use of force, damage to infrastructure and so forth. I find that really fascinating because, of course, if you overlay some of the indigenous protests into that, that is a whole can of worms. So maybe we will all have this discussion another time. Peter McKay, Michael Kempa, Sharon Collar, thanks for joining News Talk today. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk, yes, soccer. Let's just finish out after the game yesterday and see where Canada is going to go over the next four years. And I guess I shouldn't count us out, but sounds like we are. I'm Deb Hutton. This is News Talk Today. Buchanan with the cross in towards Alfonso Davies! He missed the penalty in the opener! 
News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton. That, of course, was that moment. It still gave me goosebumps, I got to say, even though I know the end result of the game. Uh, We were watching. uh, We went to Florida for a friend's wedding this weekend. And as we were packing up, we had turned on the TV to watch some of the game and not really paying attention, had it on in the background and then heard the cheering, heard that announcement and just amazing stuff. Sadly, by the time we uh, checked out of our room and got to the airport, Things had gone a bit awry after that wonderful opening. Joining me to talk all things soccer and yesterday's loss is Ian Bridge, defenseman for the 1986 Canada World Cup team. Ian scored twice as a key player in Canada's unbelievable run up to that 1986 World Finals and finished as team captain at their 1990 Nations Cup victory. He's also served as an assistant coach for the Canadian women's national team from 1997 to 2009 and joins us today to talk about the World Cup. Ian, welcome to News Talk today. Thanks, Deb. That that clip was giving me goosebumps as well. It's true. I mean, even though we know what happened, it just listening to that and the cheers, it was it was so amazing. I can't even imagine uh, what it's like for someone like you. So give us just your personal reflections on the last, I guess, week, almost week in soccer in Canada. Yeah, it's been uh, a lot of fun. Obviously, anytime there's a World Cup on every four years, you, you get a lot of time on the couch and watching the games. Uh, I'm still working and coaching, so I've got to do a little bit of that. But, um, yes, it's been a treat, obviously, watching all these games. You start early, about 4 in the morning for me here in in Nebraska, and uh, just just watch them and and try and do some work at the the same time. But certainly when the the Canadian team was playing, it's full focus. (laughs) And and certainly knowing uh, the game and the team and other teams as you do, did you have a different honest thought about where we would end up in in the Cup this year? Uh, I thought we would be almost where we are. I, I thought we could get a result in maybe one of those those two first games. It was obviously going to be really difficult opposition against very high-ranked teams in Belgium and, and Croatia. I, I thought even after the game against Belgium, the first 30 to 40 minutes, we were fantastic. I thought it was one of the best performances, at least for a half of soccer, that, that I've seen from the, the team in, in quite some time. They were exceptional in their the zonal pressing. And uh, ultimately, we're, we're, I think I'm lucky to, to not get a result, at least a draw in, the, in that first game. Then obviously going through to, to game two, you, you score that early goal, which was uh, amazing. But uh, actually, when they scored uh, and they were celebrating, I was thinking to myself, that might be a little bit too early. Oh, really? You know, you the 88 minutes to kind of hang on to that lead against, uh, obviously, a very good team. Uh, you 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 you'll take a goal anytime you want, but it was maybe nicer at a different point in the game. But but certainly just a, a landmark for the for the country and to, for men's soccer to, to to finally score a goal in the World Cup finals. That's an interesting perspective. So in politics, the world that I know better than soccer, certainly, you say sometimes a candidate or a party will peak too soon. So a similar philosophy, yeah, it, I guess. <laughs> a, a little bit like that. Again, when you're playing against a team that's probably on paper a little bit stronger than you are, you, you know, it's nice to maybe sneak in and go a little late. Um, but when you you kind of you know uh, get that early goal, it, it'll, it'll wake them up, and now you've got to defend and, and do your best for for 80, 88 minutes, as it were, or, or longer with with, with uh, extra time. But uh, yeah, it, it was a, a, a great moment, historic. 
now you... the, the goal itself the, the goal itself is quite unique obviously it's, it's been 36 years coming yeah but it was not just uh, a girl a goal but it was like an 11 pass goal it's almost a unicorn in that it was you know canada's first world cup goal it was a header by alfonso and it was also a, a long lasting kind of rare attack uh, for any team to score off after uh, an attack like that. Now, you said, uh, you know, you were a little more measured about where what you thought our chances were this time out. Where where do you see the team needing to focus over the next four years, both in terms of recruitment and, and training, certainly coaching? Just give us your perspective. Jeez, you're asking me to to, to assess the, the, the whole program, and it's very difficult for me being just as somebody on the outside that's, Really been out of the, the, the Canadian men's scene for 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 a number of years. I, I think obviously the program is in a very good position, very healthy. The, the, the talent that they have, the young talent that they have, is is exceptional. The the man in charge, John Herdman, is the right person for the job. Uh, when you see what he's done with the group from where they were to where they are now, uh, and obviously with 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 Canada hosting the, the or co-hosting the, the the tournament in four years. The future is certainly very bright for for many of these players. There's certainly some like Atiba that will be, obviously this will be, the I would think, the end of his uh, long, long career. Just, again, as an aside, he was the only guy that was alive when we played back in Mexico in 86. Wow. So I, I think the, the, pro, the, the program is for sure very, very healthy, and it just, uh, uh, this, this last game will obviously not get us into the next round. We're, we're you know, we know our fate already, but I think it, it will go a long way just to sort of show the the, the character uh, of this team, of the guys. Um, and you also obviously have been involved in, in women's soccer here in Canada. Uh, there are many people who, who put a lot of, of faith and trust into that league as well. Just your thoughts on where we are in Canada on the women's side of this. Um, how do you mean in, in, in terms of, of a league? Yeah, just in, in, in terms of, uh, like a lot of people put a lot of stock into the ability of our women's team to move forward in a in a very positive way. Well, for sure. I, again, the, the, the women's program has been really successful over the, the last you know, couple of decades with obviously um, sort of perennial World Cup appearances. Uh, the, the, the gold medal in the Olympics obviously was a, a watershed moment for the, the, the program. Uh, I think the, the women's game is, is is a very kind of stable product. It's maybe not the best term for it, but it's, it's I mean it's a it's a, a strong product. We're producing players that are playing uh, certainly a lot in the U.S. college system, which I know a lot about. But but certainly even going and, and playing abroad, whether it's in the in England or in Europe, we're, we're producing players that can play at the highest level, uh, as are the men now. So so I think yeah, the, the the men have a ways to kind of catch up in terms of being you know perennial World Cup appearances, uh, even successes in the Olympic Games. Um, but, but again, I, I think the, the women's program the is in a very good place right now. So I just, um, obviously, aside from our Canadian team and the hope that we had for it, there was so much controversy around this particular World Cup. Do you think there is a way to change the process and the system to make it uh, less controversial and more about the sport? You would hope so. Uh, I, I think, well, to, to start with, I believe the, the process for choosing the, the World Cup host now has changed from what it was when Qatar and Russia were both chosen at, at the same moment. 
Uh, I think there was not a um, there wasn't a blind vote back at, the, at that time. Uh, I think uh, some of the outrage about those countries and the way that they I think uh, got their World Cup tournaments uh, has come to light. And I think I think FIFA has made adjustments to that. But there's always going to be controversy on on who hosts it. But but certainly no more than this one now in, in Qatar. But you think the process is stable enough to to make these decisions? Because I think a lot of people have a really a lack of faith and trust in FIFA. Yes, those two words don't go together too well at, at times. Um, but but they're the, they're the the body that that runs the show. Um, and obviously, Canada has has been lucky enough, for want of a better word, to to be part of the the next big show. So that again, I think that's that's. The next big step that the game is going to take in, in Canada to be hosting these uh, these uh, tournaments, but that yeah, the transparency, the, um, the sort of the history of, of a lot of the things that have gone on at FIFA will, will continue to probably be a bit of a, a dark cloud over their head. Ian Bridge, defenseman from the 1986 Canada World Cup team and assistant coach for the Canadian women's national team from 1997 to 2009. We thank you for joining News Talk today and sharing your perspective. Thank you, Deb. Thanks for asking. Coming up after the break, we are going to hear about the federal government's proposals as it relates to China. You're listening to News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton. Holding the politicians and pundits to account. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host for News Talk Today, today, tomorrow, and Wednesday. So Canada's long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy has been announced. It describes China as an increasingly disruptive global power on the world stage, a social and economic force that's too big to ignore, but is also increasingly focused on bending international rules. Joining us to chat about this is Ben Roswell, who is the director of the Global Democracy Program at the Canadian International Council. Ben is also a former diplomat serving as the former deputy ambassador to Afghanistan. Welcome to the program, Ben. Thank you very much. So give us your overall take on what has been announced by Minister Jolie in its uh, in the government's Indo-Pacific strategy, particularly well, this, as it relates, I think, to China. To start there. Sure. Well, this is a big step forward for Canadian foreign policy. The world has changed fundamentally over the last few years, partially because of a much more aggressive China, as they say in the strategy, uh, a country whose rise was facilitated by the rules of the international system that create this kind of open law abiding um, series of processes and institutions that we've been central in building, but they are increasingly turning against those rules and trying to reinterpret them for, uh, to make the world safe for autocracy. And that might be a, a good way of, uh, of paraphrasing it. It's a step forward for foreign policy for, uh, for Canada for a few reasons. For the last 30 years, we have been very focused on engaging the whole world and on building a kind of win-win type of uh, outcome uh, in which we imagine all countries to be potential partners uh, with relations to be strengthened. We are now dealing with a world of adversaries, and adversary number one is China. 
This is the first official statement by the government of Canada in some years that we do have an adversary in international affairs, that the goal with China is not necessarily to become closer and closer partners, better and better friends, but that they are uh, pursuing in ends that are very different from our values and our interests. And this is a strategy to take Canada in a different direction. Let's uh, just take a moment to hear from Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie. What you're seeing today is a reorientation of our foreign policy we haven't seen in a long time. Why? Because there's a generational global shift happening. And she went on to say a number of things, but, but let's listen to this particular one. The central tenet of our Indo-Pacific strategy is acting in Canada's national interests without compromising your values. It is about positioning Canada as being a reliable partner now and for generations to come. And uh, finally, as, as our guest just alluded to, fairly strong language on China. China is an increasingly disruptive global power. So what does this mean, Ben, in terms of uh, spending, in terms of diplomatic approach? What, what will look different on the heels of this strategy? Well, I think those of us who have been um, professional diplomats are most encouraged by the fact that there is significant investment being promised here. We're talking about $2.3 billion uh, across all the various instruments of the Canadian government, from the military to diplomatic to economic cooperation. And that responds to a longstanding criticism of Canadian foreign policy that we have simply not put our money where our mouth is when it comes to our international interests. We have significantly reduced our, our aid project uh, budgets over the years. We have uh, reduced our military spending. We've shrunk our, our diplomatic footprint. So when it comes to the countries neighboring China, we are now going to invest much more significantly up to the levels that really are minimally appropriate for a G7 country. We have been punching well below our weight for some time in uh, in Asia, and that should uh, that sh- that's a, a very promising stand if the money does indeed flow. The other major dis- um, uh, 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 introduction um, or new element that's been introduced by this strategy is that we are differentiating our relationships, that our approach to China will be fundamentally different from our approach, say, to India or to other countries of the region. The ones that are partners in strengthening the rules of the international system, open markets, open political systems, open skies, we will double down on our relations. And with this one country that has fundamentally different objectives, different values and different interests, we will be reducing our dependence and we will become much more guarded in our engagement with China. Yeah, and, and I think the figure that is attached to it, Ben, is $2.3 billion to bolster relations in the region, including increased military spending and, and obviously stronger ties with India. W- what are the negative repercussions of this strategy, in your view? I don't see many um, repercussions uh, from China beyond what we've already been experiencing. There has been a significant souring in the relationship between China and Canada over several years from their detention, uh, unjustified detention of our nationals to uh, most recently the dressing down that that our prime minister received uh, from the the head of China for very justifiable criticism about their interference in our election. So there will be a rocky road ahead with China regardless. I think this is a 
the strategy has been has actually pulled punches uh, when it comes to to China. This is still very diplomatic uh, approach, even as we identify them as a as an adversary. Um, my concern would be more that uh, the follow through, the implementation of this fundamentally different tone and approach of uh, foreign policy might not get followed through, and that as a result, uh, we might not. Um, we might not stand up for the norms of the international system as aggressively as uh, as we must in the face of this challenge from China. So I'd say the strategy is excellent on paper. It's got some money attached to it, which makes it really meaningful. But we're talking about a different style of diplomacy and whether the, the Canadian government is able to adapt to the, the much more confrontational style that's required is an open question. Yeah, and let's hear from Minister Jolie again on, on that point. Now, when it comes to China, we have a clear framework uh, when it comes to dealing with the government of China. And uh, we will engage in diplomacy because we think diplomacy is a strength. At the same time, we'll be firm. And that's why we have now a very transparent uh, plan to engage with China. So as you said, uh, Ben, it, it looks good on paper, but but how do you shift a diplomatic effort that has been heading down a particular path for such a long time? Yeah, I should say, I mean, it's better than looking good on paper. The framing is correct. They've identified the adversary. They've defined the terms of the competition and they've invested. So the the strategy itself is sound. The implementation um, will turn on some difficult questions. One of them will be, how do we coordinate with other countries that also share our concerns about China? There's certainly a reference here to the United States. There's a, a discussion of a strategic dialogue with the United States. So great. We'll coordinate with our most important partner. But what about with the other countries of the Indo-Pacific? There is a reference to ASEAN. ASEAN is not a particularly... Um, muscular uh, diplomatic uh, forum. It's not one that uh, that um, sees itself as a counterweight to, to China in, in any way, and it's not really that um, strong a vehicle for the kinds of coordination I think that we would need. The obvious uh, ones that have other countries have joined are the Quad, the Quadrilateral Dialogue, which unites the United States, India, Japan, and Australia. There's no mention of the Quad here. Obviously, there's no mention of a military alliance along the forums that the Australians and the United Kingdom, the United States um, engaged with the nuclear submarines. We don't really want to get into the nuclear submarine business, but there's also no other uh, obvious um, forum for cooperation on military security issues within countries of the Indo-Pacific alongside. The other other area which I think there is very little for um, proponents of a stronger pro-democracy approach to the Indo-Pacific region is Taiwan. There's a mention of Taiwan, but there's no concrete steps on how we might strengthen our relationship with this vital democracy in that region. Ben Rouswell, director of the Global Democracy Program at the Canadian International Council and himself a former diplomat, we thank you so much for sharing your perspective on uh, the new policy announcement by Minister Jolie. Coming up after the break, Carolyn Stewart, who is the executive director of Feed Ontario, is going to give us some pretty negative and discouraging news about food banks in Ontario. You're listening to Deb Hutton. This is News Talk Today. Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. 
Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host for News Talk today. And we're going to talk in the next few minutes about a, a topic that I feel as though seems to be a constant, whether it's in our own thinking when you walk into a grocery store and you see that bin asking you to donate, whether it's in conversations or or topics as, as we're doing this afternoon on talk radio or in newspapers. And that, of course, is the use of food banks. Feels as though every few weeks there is a call, particularly in large cities such as Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal, for uh, folks uh, to donate either with groceries or with money. And joining us today to talk about the most recent set of uh, report findings is Carolyn Stewart, who is the executive director of Feed Ontario. Feed Ontario is an organization made up of 1,200 partner food banks here in Ontario, and it released its annual hunger hunger report earlier today. Welcome to News Talk Today, Carolyn. Good afternoon. So, you know, as I just said, it feels as though this is a an ongoing discussion that there is a a crisis with our food banks with the usage, but you're actually finding that it's it's worse than than I even think. Yeah, unfortunately, the numbers this year are the highest that we have ever seen on record. Um, this year's hunger report reveals that for the sixth consecutive year, we have seen growth and our food banks were accessed by almost 600,000 people who visited over 4.3 million times. So this is an increase in 15% more people and 42% visits since pre-pandemic times. And what's more is that we've also seen a 64% increase in first-time visitors since 2019. And we really think this is because of the lack of quality employment opportunities here in this province and the disinvestments in essential support programs, which is really driving this growth. And the fact that so many people are relying on emergency food support should be worrying all of us. You know, food banks were developed in the 80s as a short-term response and were really never intended to be a lasting solution. Um, we're seeing more and more un- Ontarians unable to afford their both basic necessities. And we have to start asking ourselves, that at what point is it enough? Um, how many people need to be accessing food banks before we start to see change? And and do your figures, are, are they a per capita or is it just a gross number year over year increase? It's a gross year number. Sorry, it's a gross number year over year. So do you have a perspective on given growing uh, populations, for example, here in Toronto in particular, do you have a perspective on on actual food use increase, food bank use? Well, I th- yeah, I think it's really important to keep in mind that um, food bank use is a symptom of poverty and it really comes down to um, people's income and there being insufficient income to meet our most basic needs. And so as life becomes increasingly unaffordable here in Ontario, it's putting pressure on people who are already trying to stretch a budget. You know, these are people who are having to make incredibly impossible choices between things like, should I pay my rent this month or should I buy food? Should I be able to trade for transit to get to work or should I buy winter clothing for my children? And so as all of these things, these culmination of factors start to combine, um, you know, it's putting more and more pressure on more Ontarians as life becomes more affordable. And that's reflected in food bank use as we see the numbers increase, but also um, in terms of the demand on food banks is really starting to outpace capacity. And we have concern at one point it may surpass that. 
you know, food banks are struggling even to recruit enough donations. They used to have two to three months worth on the shelf and now have two to three weeks. And so that's why um, we continue to echo that we are not the solution to food insecurity, but rather good public policy is. And what does good public policy look like? Yeah, in this year's Hunger Report, we outline a number of key recommendations for change to start moving the needle forward on poverty reduction, reducing the need for food banks here in Ontario. So firstly, improving the quality of work and labor laws. So things like equal pay for equal work, reinstitution of sick days and instituting a livable wage, um, making improvements to social assistance programs. So doubling the financial support provided through these programs and increasing earned income exemptions on OW. Um, investing in affordable housing. We know that housing is so, so key to security. So building new affordable rental homes and new supportive housing units. And finally, putting people at the center of policy design. So including the perspective of people with lived experience when we're developing these programs to ensure that they remain accessible, but also that they're actually addressing the needs. And and what does that last point mean? I'm not sure I have a sense of, in, in concrete terms, what that would look like for a government. Yeah, um, so in um, there was a bill, for example, presented a few years ago called Bill 60, which is um, to create a social assistance commission. So when um, the development of programs and services in through social assistance programs, so things like OW and ODSP actually include people who are accessing those services to help in the development. Because oftentimes there are a number of barriers that exist when people are trying to access those programs. So red tape, um, confusing application programs, um, difficulty applying for them, all of these things that just make it increasingly difficult for someone living in poverty who's already experiencing a huge amount of life stressors now having to navigate impossible programs. So it's really making sure that they're involved in the development and helping um, to make sure that that point of view is kept top of mind when developing programs for individuals in need. We're speaking with Carolyn Stewart, who's the executive director of Feed Ontario, which is a a, a group of about 1,200 partner food banks throughout the province. You know, what if uh, the reasons I... I support as a as a as an individual food banks and and don't do it as as much as I probably should, which is why these conversations are important, is because I like the notion of community support as opposed to always making government the first place that you turn to when people are in need, and that really I think is the basis of our food banks. Is it not that that we give people a helping hand as a community? when they find themselves in in difficult positions. And yet much of what you're advocating for is government solutions, government dollars, therefore tax dollars. Yeah, that's correct. Um, You know, ultimately, when you look at food banks, food banks were intended as a stopgap measure. We were never intended as a solution. Right. So we were created in the 80s as an emergency response to an emergency need. We were never intended to be institutionalized. And so, but as the problem continued to grow here in Ontario, the need for food banks increased. So, you know, part of what was included in this year's Hunger Report was that, in fact, actually a 30-year retrospective, um, because our organization marked 30 years this um, of service this year. And so what we were able to reveal was that it's actually... um, more difficult now to escape poverty than it was 40 years ago. In fact, for a child born in the 80s, they're actually 22% more likely to remain in poverty as an adult than as a, ch- than as a child born in the 1960s. And there's a number of reasons for this. You know, Ontario's labor market ha- has shifted. So 
we saw well-paying, stable, unionized manufacturing jobs of 40 years ago disappear, and they've been replaced with precarious employment with no or few um, worker protections. And then in addition to that, we've seen changes in the social safety net, a disinvestment in affordable housing. And so all these things have really made it increasingly difficult for someone to improve their financial circumstance today. I think oftentimes people, you know, really go back to the just just get a job type type mentality. But unfortunately, well, there may have been a time when education employment really guaranteed certain outcomes. These opportunities were also supported by a strong safety net that allowed people to quickly get back on their feet. But now, over time, we've just started to dismantle that safety net that was meant to catch people during times of uncertainty. And so these large gaps in our social safety net, we're now relying on food banks to fill them. And that's why food banks can never replace systemic good public policy. And yet governments are spending more and more and more on these very things that you're talking about. So in fact, in some circumstances, there's been significant cuts across the board. If you look at this year's hunger report, even looking at things like affordable housing. So um, there's actually been a stagnation in affordable housing over the last 25 years. And so as we know, um, I think the ratio used to be one in 14 um, units was built. Uh, so for every one in 14 people in the province of Ontario unit was built. Now it's one in 200 people. So that's why the wait list for affordable housing here in Ontario is 150,000 people. And so that's just one example. But if we don't continue to make sure that if we keep dismantling systems, but then not replacing them with anyone else, there's a reason there's so many people accessing food banks. Life has gotten increasingly more expensive. And then we've dismantled supports at the same time. Carolyn so, Stewart, is I, I apologize. We do have to go. Thank you for your time. Executive Director of Feed Ontario. It's Deb Hutton. This is News Talk Today. Welcome back to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It's Deb Hutton, your host for News Talk Today, and we're going to open up the phone lines, 1-855-633-1010, and talk about alcohol and government regulation. So there I was yesterday flying home from a, a lovely few days in Florida at a friend's wedding, reading a magazine on the airplane, and I discovered that the federal government in the United States is looking at putting nutrition facts on alcohol, on your bottle of wine, on your bottle of vodka. You know those labels. They're at the end of our cereal boxes. They're on our soup cans. They're they're everywhere. What are the nutritional facts? How many uh, grams of sugar? How much sodium? How many calories you'll consume in an average serving? And by the way, average serving never is the serving I give. So I guess that's why they put that little tidbit on the uh, on the labels. But the federal government in the states is looking at doing that for alcohol. And then I wake up this morning and there is another article to read. This time, Canadian Senator Patrick Brazeau has introduced a bill that would place labels on alcohol to warn of links to cancer and remind consumers about the low risk of cancer in drinking. one 633 Do you need to be told that drinking alcohol may not be the best thing for your health? Or is this just a little bit too much big brother for most of us when it comes to a legal substance in this country? one 633 
Patrick Brezzo, the uh, senator who has been over the years very open about his own substance abuse issues, said that this is not a fight against alcohol. It's a fight against cancer. A report by the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction says that recent data shows that alcohol causes nearly 7,000 cancer deaths annually. An important fact, something we should be aware of. But do we need it attached, as it was uh, a number of years ago, here in Ontario in particular, to our tobacco packaging? Do we need these massive reminders about how many calories are in alcohol, about how much sugar is in alcohol, and about the cancer-causing components of alcohol? Give me a call and let me know your thoughts on this, one 855 633 I got to tell you, I actually like the notion of content, nutrition value, or lack thereof, as opposed to the, what I'll call the flashing warnings of things like cancer. I wasn't, I'd never been a smoker, but was not a fan of what was done in the tobacco industry. I thought government's role should be to make sure that underage smoking was absolutely cracked down on, that there was stiff penalties for people who sold to minors or gave cigarettes to minors, but either a product is legal and available for sale to a certain percentage of the population, or it's not. And I feel that way about alcohol. Government should place its priorities on making sure we have effective regulation in the industry for safety and effective cracking down for underage drinking, smoking, etc. 1-855-633-1010. I said a moment ago, I actually like the nutritional value, the nutrition facts that we're used to on many of our, our food products on alcohol, but I don't believe government should enforce that. I think that is a helpful fact that a winery might want to put on their product, but I don't believe they should have to. Let's go to the phone lines, 1-855-633-1010. William in Hamilton, what's your view? So I think the warning labels about possible cancer risks and so on and so forth, I don't know. I don't know enough about the science on that to say one way or the other. Warning, alcohol may cause intoxication. Um, You know, fine. Okay, don't drink and drive. Fine, no problem. Although I disagree, I disagree with the new. I disagree with your stance on the nutrition facts. I think if you're going to mandate that you have to have nutrition facts on pop, on food, on chips, on you know uh, a bag of rice or whatever it is, why is alcohol special and it doesn't deserve to have that same level of sort of regulation? To say that a glass of wine might be 250 calories and 30 grams of sugar or whatever. I think it should be, and I think it's the government's place to mandate that that get done. And, you know, they work with the food industry and the booze industry to make it happen. And you like that because you just think what's good for one's good for another, or you actually would pay I, attention? I think I would pay attention because I make decisions based off for booze, based off of sugar count. I'm diabetic. If I'm gonna If I'm going to drink something, I would rather it be a vodka with little to no sugar versus a rum, which might have a lot more sugar than another rum or another thing in that, so on and so forth. I think it's about informed, it make, allowing us to make the informed decision based off of science that we don't have. We don't run food labs, so we, we're not able to do that. So I think it's a good place for it to do that. And I think that that is the place of government to say, hey, you got to put this on here and you just got to tell everybody what's in your stuff. 
All right. Otherwise, we remove it all. William, thanks for the call. Let's go to Priya in Toronto. Do you like the notion of government telling you alcohol is bad, can cause cancer, and by the way, here's how many calories are in it? Hi. Uh, as I was telling your screener, I work in the wine world here in Toronto, and while it's my job to host events and encourage people to come to our events and try a lot of different wines, I think it's we are all about advising people to drink responsibly. And I know we hear oftentimes people saying, well, I drink wine because it's better than this because I've cut out sugar. Just like your previous caller was saying, there's a lot of hidden sugar and calories in wine that I think people, they just don't think about it. So when they're trying to make healthy choices, especially over the holiday season, they might forego that extra serving of dessert and have like a dessert wine or something and not really know that they are still intaking a lot of calories and a whole lot of sugar that they're not aware of. So, well, I think you and I agree on some of this. Do you believe government should enforce it? Well, I think if you leave it to the alcohol providers, they might not want to put that kind of information on bottles because it's going to discourage people, could potentially discourage customers from buying their products. So that's not what they want, obviously. Um, I know that there are, of course, lots of responsible winemakers and other alcohol makers and agents, but this is their business and it's been such a hard few years that expecting them to put something on their labels that will further hurt their sales after really a disastrous few years is asking a lot of them. So I don't love government oversight, but there are times when they have to step in. All right, Priya, thanks for the call. Let's go to Keith in Mount Albert. Keith, do you like it, or is it overreach on the part of government to do all this? Um, this is this is one of those interesting topics that I've been talking about for a long time. I, I work in the field of addictions and mental health, and I've stated for the longest period of time that very much like cigarettes, you need to put a label on alcohol because the uh, side effects and consequences for some can be extreme. Um, putting... Putting the government in charge of it is the only way that it's going to happen because no individual is going to put something on there saying that their um, product is not safe for consumption, for instance, during pregnancy, as we all know, or that it's not uh, not safe or could cause uh, liver cirrhosis or any of these kind of things. They're not going to put, up, put that on it freely. So you have to have, unfortunately, uh, government intervention. If we're not teaching this, though, in the schools, it doesn't matter what you put on the labels. People are going to do it anyways because they're going to experiment. They're going to figure it out for themselves. Um, you know, we need to we need to either ratchet things down entirely and have a, a government state where they take over everything, uh, or we need to open it up and we need to educate people. All right, Keith, I'm going to have to leave it there. Thanks so much for the call. I will be back in this seat tomorrow at noon. Thanks for joining me. I'm Deb Hutton. It's News Talk Today.